Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. Due to the graphic nature of this couple's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Before Kay could pull back the blanket for her daughters, they had already scrambled onto the huge mattress, bouncing with glee. Sleeping over at someone else's house felt like a special treat, like they were on a vacation and staying at a hotel. Kay encouraged the fantasy. She didn't want the girl's father to notice they'd been at her boyfriend's house. Kay settled the girls in for the night, tucking them snugly under the blanket. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. She gave them each a kiss, then turned off the light. Before she closed the door, she reminded the girls they weren't allowed to come out of the room until morning. Mommy's friends needed quiet time, and she trusted the girls to behave. They promised. She blew them each another kiss and shut them in for the night. Kay climbed the creaking basement steps to the main floor. She shut the door at the top of the stairs and locked it. No interruptions. When she reached the master bedroom, Kay was humming with anticipation. Inside, the man she loved waited for her. Well, him and his wife. While tonight was a culmination of weeks of planning, it would also mark the beginning of a relationship that would change Kay's life forever. A tryst that would turn deadly. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is our new podcast, Crimes of Passion, on the Parcast Network. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim? Or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? 
At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Harold and Ina Noakes lived a typical small-town existence in McCook, Nebraska, raising their children and running a cafe. In their mid-40s, they started an unconventional relationship with 29-year-old Kay Hoyt Hine that eventually turned deadly. In this episode, we'll probe the Noakes' relationship with Kay, how it developed and later devolved. Next week, we'll explore the aftermath of a murder, the investigation, and the consequences. When Harold married Ina in April 1946, neither of them had graduated yet from McCook High School in Nebraska. 18-year-old Harold was still a month shy of earning his diploma. Ina, 16 and pregnant, would drop out and never finish. Harold was tall and athletic in high school, a basketball player with thick black hair. Although known to be reserved, he was hardworking and well-liked. While Harold stood over six feet tall, Ina came in just under five. A classmate said that Ina had pursued Harold all through high school, speculating that she'd probably had her sights set on marriage all along. They welcomed a baby girl in December of 1946. Harold's decision to stand by Ina, marry her, and raise a family at such a young age was an early testament of his loyalty to her. The young couple moved to Denver, Colorado after the birth. They had both spent the entirety of their lives in Nebraska and moved their little family west to find new opportunities. But they didn't adjust well to life in a big city. After only three months, they returned to Nebraska in 1947. Harold and Ina were well-suited for each other, enjoying boating, camping, and hunting together. Ina was an expert shot in particular, said to be able to shoot the eye out of a hawk. The family welcomed another child in 1950 when Ina was 20 and Harold 22. The couple ran a cafe in McCook, Nebraska, until they sold it in 1959. Harold went on to work for the Nebraska Department of Roads, leading a crew of men responsible for repair and maintenance of the roads, bridges, rest areas, and road signs in McCook and the surrounding areas. It was through this position that in 1968, he was introduced to Duane Hine and eventually Duane's wife, Kay Hoyt Hine. Kay Hoyt Hine was born in 1943, the middle daughter of five children. She was heavily doted upon by her parents, Edwin and Wilma, and could do no wrong in their eyes. According to James Hewitt's book on the Noakeses in Cold Storage, Kay's siblings labeled her as manipulative, able to work her parents from a young age. Whenever it was Kay's turn to dry the dishes, she was attacked by sneezing fits, unable to continue with the chore, even though she had no documented allergies. Wilma would swoop in and excuse Kay, taking over the drying for her. Just a note before we continue. I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. 
Psychologist Carl Pickhart, author of Surviving Your Child's Adolescence, would classify Kay's behavior as manipulative. He posits that as children age, manipulation of parental authority through lying, pretense, and pressuring becomes more common. Faced with the child's tantrum, the parent feels regret or remorse for saying no or simply seeks relief from the emotional intensity and so relents. Kay knew from a young age what buttons to push in her parents to receive whatever she desired. Like Harold and Ina, Kay Hoyt and her future husband, Dwayne Hine, were high school sweethearts, named the king and queen of hearts at the Valentine's Dance their senior year in 1961. Duane was a star athlete in high school and described by a classmate as one of the nicest, most decent guys I have ever known. They were married in 1961, soon after graduating from McCook High School, and had two daughters, Brenda and Angela. But their relationship changed over the course of their marriage. Kay constantly belittled her husband. Those familiar with the couple agreed Duane was a good husband and father, deserving better treatment than he received from his wife. Kay was open with her complaints about Duane, telling several friends that he made no effort to accommodate her sexual needs and desires. She felt he was more interested in his own outdoor hobbies than spending any time with her. Kay's criticisms of her husband, as well as the treatment of her parents, might indicate some narcissistic tendencies on her part. According to Darlene Lancer, an expert on toxic relationships, common forms of narcissistic abuse against loved ones include verbal abuse such as belittling or bullying, as well as manipulation. People with narcissistic personality disorder commonly have a sense of entitlement and require excessive admiration from those around them. In Kay's mind, Duane wasn't doing enough to reinforce her happiness, and that should have been his priority above all else, just like her parents. In 1968, 25-year-old Duane took a laborer job on a road maintenance crew in McCook, Nebraska, introducing him to Harold Noakes. Despite their 15-year age difference, the men had similar interests and became close friends, introducing their wives socially. 25-year-old Kay and 39-year-old Ina also connected. They both worked in downtown McCook and would often have lunch together. The couple started going out to dinner and dancing, as well as taking camping trips. Kay was never much of an outdoors woman, but she tolerated these excursions to be closer to Harold Noakes. She was increasingly attracted to the older man as her feelings towards Duane continued to cool. And on New Year's 1970, Kay told Harold of her interest. Kay loved to dance. As Duane swished her around the floor of the decorated Elks Club, she took stock of the rest of the couple's present. She was definitely the prettiest woman here and the best dancer. She'd show off even more if her husband was a more competent partner. He could barely spin her without entangling their arms. Duane was handsome in his tux, but useless with his feet. She watched Harold and Ina across the room. Their mismatched height made them look like a cartoon couple. The way Harold towered over his wife made them unsuited to most of the more complicated dance steps, but 
they may do. When the band took a break, Kay and Dwayne reunited with the other couple at a table. Ina fanned herself and complained all the dancing was making her sweat. Harold quickly leapt up to fetch his wife a drink, and Kay twinged with jealousy. She made a similar comment to her husband, Duane. She, too, was a touch warm. He just pulled out his handkerchief to dab his forehead, agreeing about the temperature, and sucked on a beer bottle. What a blockhead. When the music started again, Ina declined her husband's arm. Her feet were tired. Kay hopped up to take her place instead. She was more than happy to keep Harold company on the dance floor and leave her own husband's two left feet behind. He handily led Kay through her best steps. They moved to the center of the dance floor and soon the other couples were circled around watching. Then the music suddenly stopped again. It was almost midnight. Ina and Duane joined their spouses in preparation of the new year. Kay felt like Cinderella, as her Prince Charming was replaced with Duane the Pumpkin. The crowd chanted a countdown. Five. Four. Kay took a step away from her husband to be closer to Harold. Three. Two. She tapped Harold on the shoulder. One. Happy New Year. Kay leaned in and kissed Harold's lips. To her surprise, he kissed back. Even in 1970, even in Nebraska, a New Year's kiss between friends wasn't out of the ordinary. Probably nothing that either of their spouses would have even commented on, but it would mark the first step of Kay and Harold's affair. A little over a month after New Year's Eve, Kay Hoyt Hine called Harold Noakes. She needed to talk to him about something important. He picked her up from work that afternoon so they could speak away from her husband. They drove for a bit west from the city and then parked on a quiet dirt road. Kay told Harold how she felt about Duane. He didn't love her or take care of her. Most importantly, he didn't satisfy her needs. She felt so much more attracted to someone like Harold. They slept together then and there in the front seat of Harold's parked car, igniting the affair. According to psychologist Douglas Labier, there are six common types of extramarital affairs. For Kay, this was most likely an I'll show you affair, aimed at retaliating against her husband, Duane, who she felt hadn't shown her the proper amount of attention for years. In this type of affair, the anger and resentment towards one's spouse isn't dealt with, simply overshadowed by the new relationship, and in some cases, those feelings can shift to the new partner over time. Harold later told law enforcement that Kay was a hard woman to satisfy, who enjoyed a variety of sexual experiences. By March of 1970, they were meeting each other weekly at various hotels and rest stops in South Nebraska. Despite their age difference, 28-year-old Kay started to fall in love with 43-year-old Harold as the affair continued over the next several months. She began fantasizing about sharing a life with him, having a real relationship. This was no longer just an affair, but true love. Harold was always quick to talk her down. 
they had responsibilities to their spouses, Ina and Duane. In 1971, Kay divorced herself from those responsibilities. At that time, Nebraska did not have a no-fault divorce option, meaning Kay had to prove acts of extreme cruelty on Duane's part. Kay turned to her parents for help. Kay's parents, Edwin and Wilma, were lifelong Nebraskans and generally salt-of-the-earth people. Edwin grew up on a farm and always kept a piece of land to work through his life, even if only part-time. Wilma was a doting mother to her five children and an even more attentive grandmother. Edwin and Wilma loved to go fishing together and attend pinochle parties. Kay was always more reliant on her parents than the other four siblings. Perhaps because Kay was the last one to feed her maternal drive, Wilma could never resist an urge to help her daughter. She could be classified as an enabler to Kay's manipulative behavior. According to Dr. Jeffrey Bernstein, this relationship dynamic stems from parents who want to be needed. They want their child to be happy on his own, yet they live in fear of not doing enough to help their child get there. Wilma's entire world was her children and grandchildren. At the time of Kay and Duane's divorce hearing, neither of the Hoyts had any inkling of the affair with Harold Noakes. So when Kay told them that Duane yelled at her and the girls, verbally abusing them, Edwin and Wilma were happy to take the stand for their daughter. The judge sided with Kay and granted the divorce, awarding her full custody. Shortly after, Duane moved to Colorado and remarried there. Wilma would later discover that the testimony she gave was entirely false. With Duane out of the picture, Kay urged Harold to follow suit, divorce Ina so they could be together. Finally, in May of 1972, over two years after the affair began, Harold set Ina down to talk. He confessed everything to her about his relationship with Kay. We'll see Ina's reaction to Harold's confession after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. In May of 1972, 44-year-old Harold Noakes was consumed with guilt, forcing him to make a confession to his wife, Ina. For the last two years, he'd been engaged in an affair with 29-year-old Kay Hoyt Hine. Harold gave Ina every detail, answering all her questions. Though Kay had been pressuring Harold to ask for a divorce, his confession did not end the Noakes' marriage. Instead, Ina forgave him. In fact, she gave him her blessing to continue the relationship. At 42 years old, she probably wasn't interested in living as a single woman and figured that if this relationship was what Harold needed to be happy, so be it. A few months later, Harold approached Ina to talk again. He wanted her to be happy too. 
she should take part in the affair with him and Kay. It's a somewhat surprising turn of events and a strange ask on Harold's part. Ina had already given him permission to continue sleeping with Kay. Now he wanted her active participation because he thought it would help her be happy. In a New York Times article, psychotherapist Esther Perel said that working through affairs can in some cases bring couples closer together. She said, Betrayal cuts to the bone, but the wound can be healed. Plenty of people care deeply for the well-being of their partners, even while lying to them, just as plenty of those who have been betrayed continue to love the ones who lie to them and want to find a way to stay together. Harold didn't want to end his marriage, but he couldn't deny how much he enjoyed the affair. By involving Ina in this, he may have actually been trying to strengthen their relationship. Harold later conceded that Ina probably only agreed to the threesome because she was afraid he would leave her for Kay and didn't want to lose the marriage. Ina has never discussed the threesome on record. Kay told investigators that in late June of 1972, Harold called her to invite her on a trip for the 4th of July. He and Ina were going to Lake McConaughey for the holiday to fish and he wanted Kay to come too. She recalled Harold casually mentioning to her that the cabin they were staying in had only one bed. Apparently, Harold and Kay had previously discussed the possibility of bringing Ina into the bedroom and now he wanted to act on it. Harold asked Kay if she would come over and spend the night with them, sort of a trial run for the trip. Kay agreed and that night drove to the Noakes' house with her two daughters and a nightgown. She put the girls to bed in the guest room and joined Harold and Kay and the master. In the investigator's transcript, Kay went into extremely specific detail of the events of their first night together, graphically recounting all of the pairings and positions of the threesome, describing Harold as a ringmaster orchestrating their every movement. The investigator called her testimony a primer for anyone hoping or planning to engage in three-way sex. The test run at the Noakes' home was apparently a success as the trio went to the cabin on the shore of Lake McConaughey for the 4th of July, 1972. There, they repeated the performance from the Noakes' bedroom. After their trip, they continued meeting a few times a week at the Noakes' home the Heinhome and various other hotels around McCook and the surrounding area to sleep together. But throughout this, Kay was still deeply in love with Harold and wanted him to leave Ina. This would indicate a shift in their relationship according to LeBeer's definitions of types of affairs to an it's not really an affair affair. She had continued to foster a fantasy of her future with Harold as his wife. In this relationship, one party is available, but the other isn't. The available partner believes that the other really will leave his or her spouse, given enough time and patience. But the longer the threesome continued on, the farther her hopes of being with Harold the way she wanted drifted away. She started growing resentful of Ina. Kay later told investigators that involving Ina in the bedroom was originally her idea. 
seemingly as a way to scandalize Ina out of the marriage. She said, I loved Harold, and I was so sure that Ina wouldn't go for this, and I was so sure that he would leave her, and I just wanted to be a person, a whole person, and he didn't want that. I wanted him alone. In March of 1973, the trio took another vacation together to Kansas City, Missouri. It was a long drive back home, so they stopped overnight, staying in a hotel. They went out to dinner and then dancing. They laughed and drank together, seemingly a perfect evening. But to Kay, the whole night inflamed her festering resentment of Ina. She had reached a breaking point. Kay silently fumed as she changed out of her dress in the hotel bathroom. Just looking at it made her rage. A new dress, and she'd wasted its debut on a bunch of country bumpkins. Harold had made one nice comment about it, but he would congratulate a dog for having spots. Kay slipped her nightgown over her head and put the dress on a hanger. When she came out of the bathroom, Harold and Ina were laying down together, cuddled close. It made Kay see red. She turned away from them and hung up her dress in the closet, but she could still hear Harold whispering to Ina, making her giggle like an idiot. It had been the same all through dinner and drinks. Harold only had eyes for his wife. Kay had watched annoyed as he fed Ina bites off his plate. When they went dancing, Kay was forced to cut in to get any songs with Harold. He never came looking for her. Now in this moment, standing in her nightgown listening to the lovebird's coo, Kay was struck with an epiphany. It was like a switch flipped on. She realized with such clarity that Harold was never going to leave his wife, Ina was never going to demand a divorce, and Kay would be stuck in second position always. What had she been doing for the last year, romping around with people almost old enough to be her parents? She'd been completely duped. She was suddenly flushed with a tidal wave of embarrassment, making her cheeks hot. She sat down on the edge of the bed keeping her back turned to Harold and Ina. Harold lightly teased Kay for being so quiet. He told her not to be such a sourpuss. She snapped back at him. Maybe she would have more to say if they were more interesting. Ina was stung into silence. Harold's temper flared. He chastised Kay for trying to ruin what had been a lovely day. Kay unleashed on Harold for every slight she had incurred during the evening. He was cruel. He was playing favorites. He didn't love her enough. He was worthless. Harold had heard enough. He slapped her across the face so hard she fell backwards into the nightstand. She held her ear, still ringing from the impact. Harold had a dumb look on his face, shocked by his own reaction. Ina started to cry. When Kay was able to stand again, she pushed herself up using the nightstand for help. She said in a clear voice, Take me home now. They left their hotel room immediately and drove through the night back to McCook. With that, the affair between Kay Hine and the Noakeses ended. Harold and Ina called relentlessly over the next month pleading with Kay to change her mind. 
According to a Psychology Today article, participants in affairs become intoxicated by the feeling they get with each new encounter. It can be compared to addiction as three main chemicals are released during this initial stage. Dopamine, which is also activated by cocaine and nicotine, norepinephrine, otherwise known as adrenaline, and serotonin, one of love's most important chemicals. The nine-month affair had brought new life into the Noakes' marriage, and they weren't ready to let go of that high. In April 1973, about a month after the hotel incident, Ina noticed a change in Kay's voice and demeanor during a phone call. She was being morbid, talking about dying, with a slight slur to her words. When Harold got home from work, Ina convinced him that they should go to Kay's house to check on her. She was surprised to see them, but allowed them to stay. They were worried about her, and Kay was never one to turn down attention. Her strange behavior persisted. Kay slapped her young daughter in the face for what she called backtalk. Ina was shocked. Then Kay flew into a hysterical rage, screaming at Harold, throwing an empty pill bottle at him. She stuffed $20 into a shirt pocket and spat, Make sure you buy my daughter's flowers at my funeral. Ina and Harold started to panic. They urged Kay to tell them what pills she'd taken and argued over whether or not they needed to call an ambulance. Eventually, Kay let Harold call her mother. Wilma came with Kay's father, Edwin, to the house. Wilma stayed with her granddaughters and Edwin drove Kay to a doctor. The Noakeses were asked to leave. Kay had been hospitalized twice before for depressive episodes. First at 18, a few months before her high school graduation in 1961, and again in late 1970 as her divorce proceedings were beginning. Both times she was found to have no signs of mental illness and was sent home after a few days. While the doctor's notes from these days do not outright accuse Kay of feigning her episodes, no medication was prescribed. Kay's actions fit with the DSM-5 definition of malingering, the simulation of disease by the intentional production of false or grossly exaggerated physical or psychological symptoms motivated by external incentives. This most recent visit was no different. The doctor determined that Kay wasn't in any danger. If she did in fact take anything, it wasn't stronger than Tylenol. He said that she needed a good rest to relieve her anxiety. Edwin brought her home to recuperate. Any suicide attempt, even feigned, is often called a cry for help. Psychologist Paul Jaffe, who has studied suicide among college students, refutes this. Sometimes these attempts are more about asserting control. It sends the message, you can't control how I feel. You can't direct the circumstances around me. I'm going to trump you by making myself unavailable to those consequences. Kay was lashing out at the Noakeses, placing the blame for her hurt feelings at their feet. For anything she did to herself, they had only themselves to blame. While Kay and Edwin drove home, they discussed her relationship with the Noakeses. He was concerned by how much influence they had on her life. When she'd fallen seriously ill with the flu earlier that year, she had stayed with Harold and Ina, letting them nurse her back to health. When she needed money for a new car, 
It was Harold who loaned her $600. Now he found them at her house while she was in a hysterical episode. Bakay assured her father that the relationship with the Noxes was over. She was done with them. And she was true to her word this time. After this suicidal episode didn't garner whatever response she was looking for from Harold, Kay spent the summer of 1973 on a mission to wash the Noxes out of her hair. She started flings with seven men from May to September of 1973. She could have been trying to advertise to Harold that other men found her attractive. But seeing as how Harold and Ina were desperate for her to return to the relationship, this wasn't the point that needed to be made. Instead, Kay seemed to be telling Harold that if he didn't want to leave Ina for her, she would find what she needed elsewhere, several times over. In a similar fashion as the original I'll Show You Affair, that summer, Kay's conquest included her boss, a local car dealer, one ex-convict, and several construction workers. With this last group, Kay was probably hoping that one of her beaus worked with Harold in the roads department and word of their relationship would reach him. Still, McCook was a small town. Even if she hadn't slept with Harold's colleagues, word of her many late-night visitors would have inevitably found their way to the Noxes and the Hoyts for that matter. Soon after she started this brigade of lovers, Harold's calls to Kay changed in tone. Instead of supplicating himself to her, he was angry with her, aggressive. He tried to shame her for sleeping with other men. Kay told investigators one of the last things he said to her was that she would be sorry one day for leaving him. Up next, we'll see how Harold's behavior towards Kay escalated to violence. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1973, 45-year-old Harold Noakes was aggressively pursuing 30-year-old Kay Hine. He hoped to convince her to come back to their relationship after it had abruptly ended three months before. Instead, she was sleeping with several other men in town, taunting Harold. His attempts to reach her became more desperate and more threatening. In late May, Harold went to Kay's house in the middle of the night. Under the cover of dark, he poured a powerful weed killer all over the lawn. The grass was wiped out practically overnight, reduced to dead brown strings. He used so much poison, it damaged the adjacent trees and shrubs as well, and drew even more attention from Kay's neighbors. Kay seemed unfazed by this completely and continued her tryst. In early June, he told her she was nothing better than a two-bit whore. She needed a red light on her front porch to let the neighborhood know about her profession. A few weeks later, a package arrived in the mail, a light bulb that had been painted red. A month after that, Harold poured sugar into Kay's gas tank, seriously damaging the car that he had helped her purchase. This behavior contradicted neighbors' descriptions of Harold, they said he was a little reserved but friendly, always willing to lend a tool or a hand, but Kay conjured a petulant monster in Harold. Dr. Mark Thorpe, a professor of psychology at Auckland University, has said of post-breakup destructive behavior, there's a hidden message. 
I'm missing you terribly, and that's why I hate you. This seems to fit with Harold's mindset. He later said, I felt like she had hurt me a lot, and I guess I tried to hurt her back a little. During Kay's personal summer of love, graffiti had started to appear around McCook, painted onto various road signs, bridges, public restrooms, and park benches. These were all areas that Harold frequented in relation to his job, and the messages were all about Kay and the men she was sleeping with. They said, Kay Hine is a good lay, just ask. The two men who were named in the graffiti eventually complained to the sheriff's office about the messages, and an investigation was launched. When Kay was first interviewed, she denied knowing either man, but the graffiti continued to spread and another alleged sexual partner was named. This time, investigators pressed Kay, and she admitted to sleeping with one of the men. She also told them about the affair with Harold Noakes, but didn't think he was the one behind the graffiti. She completely omitted Enid's part in the relationship. Kay suspected it was an ex-lover who was writing these messages, but not Harold. Harold later admitted to graffitiing a few signs, but swore up and down that someone else had written them also. According to In Cold Storage, Kay's sister Donna speculated that Kay was actually behind some of the graffiti. She suspected Kay enjoyed advertising her sexual prowess, particularly to Harold Noakes, who could be tasked with overseeing the cleanup of the graffiti as part of his job. In support of her theory, Donna said that after she told Kay she couldn't babysit her girls, new graffiti appeared about Donna on a bridge near her home. It felt like Kay's form of striking back at her. In the end, the graffiti investigation was closed in August 1973 without being solved, as the investigating officers were found to have a severe conflict of interest. Officers Don Hagen and W.W. Tumblin were both rumored to have stayed over at Kay's house several times during the inquiry to protect her. But as none of the graffiti had occurred at her home, the need for a personal detail was entirely gratuitous and they were probably just sleeping together. The graffiti case was Tumblin's last investigation. He quietly resigned at the end of summer 1973. In late June, four months after the affair had ended, Harold's desperation reached a breaking point. He enlisted Ina's help to talk to Kay. He had to try something desperate. Ina agreed to reach out to Kay on Harold's behalf. She called Kay around noon asking for help. She told her that she had cut her hand on a box cutter and because of the placement of the injury, was having a hard time getting a bandage on. Harold wasn't home and she was bleeding quite a bit. Kay agreed to drive over and assist. When she arrived 10 minutes later, the door to the Noakes' house was open. She could see Ina standing in the living room, her hand wrapped in a towel. Kay called out to her and quickly stepped inside the house. When she did, the door immediately shut behind her. Harold revealed himself. She was trapped. Kay felt like a naive child for believing Ina's fake pleas for help she'd actually felt concern for Harold's dumpy wife. The keys on the ring chattered as Kay handed them to Ina with shaking hands. Ina smiled warmly at her, trying to reassure her. 
Harold just wanted to talk. She would take Kay's car and leave them to it. Kay seethed. Ina didn't even have the guts to stick around to see what Harold did to her. Bewildered by the turn of events and with images of the scorched lawn in her mind, Kay watched Ina drive away in her car. Harold was very calm. He wanted to show her something. He asked in a level tone if she would come with him downstairs. Kay didn't want to provoke him, so she agreed and followed Harold down the basement steps. She gripped the railing for balance, suddenly dizzy, her head rushing, her stomach a knot of dread. Harold flicked on the light. He went to his gun locker. Harold loaded his deer rifle with ammunition and cocked it. Kay's mind raced and she internally screamed at herself for following this lunatic willingly down to the basement. He's going to shoot me down here and no one will know. Instead, Harold handed her the rifle. It was heavier than she expected. Go ahead, he said. Take me out of my pain. He didn't want to live without her. His eyes were red, starting to fill with tears. At the sight of Harold's crying, all of the cold fear in her veins flared into spite. She let the rifle clatter to the ground, making Harold scramble to grab the gun and uncock it. Kay scoffed. You don't want me. You want Ina. She turned her back on him and started back upstairs. Harold caught up to Kay in the living room, catching her wrist, pleading with her. He wrapped Kay in his arms, forcing his mouth against hers, pulling at her clothes, trying to undress her. He insisted they sleep together again so she could remember why they were so perfect for each other. Repulsed, Kay pushed Harold off of her and ran away. She bolted across the living room, out the door and down the porch steps. Harold chased after her, but in his haste, he tripped off the stoop and fell three feet, landing on his right shoulder, severely injuring it. In spite of his arm, Harold hopped up and continued the chase, eventually catching Kay. He dragged her back to the house, railing about what the neighbors would think. In the struggle to get her inside, he ripped her dress and slip. Back in the living room, Kay vomited and passed out. When she woke up, they drove to meet Ina, who still had Kay's car. Harold needed to see a doctor for his shoulder and Ina would take him. As they parted, Harold made Kay promise that she would come back to the house after his arm had been treated. She agreed, probably just so Harold would let her leave. After that day, Kay did not return to the Noakes' home. After the incident in July, August 1973 was relatively quiet for all parties. Kay and her daughters traveled to Wisconsin with her parents to visit one of her brothers. There's no record of any communication between her and the Noakeses since that day at their house. For Ina and Harold, much of August was spent in routine, save for one purchase. On August 25th, Harold went to a local gun shop he told the clerk he was looking for a pistol to use for target practice and hunting small game. His shoulder was still injured, his arm practically useless, and he couldn't withstand the kickback from a long gun. He purchased a 22 caliber Ruger pistol. The same gun was tucked in his waistband on the night he paid a visit to Kay's parents. 
On the night of September 23, 1973, Harold and Ina went to a drive-in for dinner. Afterward, they drove to the Hoyts' farm in Colbertson, arriving a little past 9 p.m. The Ruger pistol safely tucked into his waistband, Harold knocked on Edwin and Wilma's back door. They were shocked and confused to see the notices, as Kay had assured her parents repeatedly that the relationship was over. Yet, here they stood, asking to come inside. Harold, comforted by the weight of the pistol in his belt, spoke in an authoritative voice. They needed to talk about Kay. As we close out this episode, we want to acknowledge the many sources that informed our writing with a special thanks to James Hewitt, the author of In Cold Storage, Sex and Murder on the Plains. His extensive investigation of the Hoyts murder was critical to the making of this episode. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back on Wednesday with part two of the Noakes' story. We'll explore the aftermath of Harold and Ina's late-night visit to the Hoyt farm and the murder investigation that followed. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is a part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.